Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Making it okay to say no to beers in the bush. Alcohol is the most commonly used drug in Australia, with consumption per capita and alcohol-related harm increasing with remoteness. People living in regional, rural and remote Australia are are more likely to drink frequently or at levels harmful to their health, with various contributing factors including culture and social acceptability. Shanna Wan is a nationally recognised speaker, blogger and national advocate specialising in rural alcohol awareness. Her initiative, Sober in the Country, began as a blog in 2015 and evolved into a national Australian charity and is today a raw and authentic conversation and connection point for peers that's changing and saving lives. Shanna's two-decade descent into alcoholism began as a trauma, then hiding behind a party girl persona, and finally, it almost cost her her life. Today, it's her life's work to advocate for others by speaking candidly about the truth of alcohol addiction in rural Australia, a demographic she believes is being willfully overlooked by our national health leaders. She's a nominee in this year's Australian of the Year Local Hero Awards, a finalist for the Rex Airlines 2020 Regional Woman, Woman of the Year, and also a 2017 finalist in the New South Wales ACT AgriFutures Rural Woman of the Year Awards. Shanna is passionate about sustainable people in the regional space. She is speaking up on behalf of a vast number of hardworking rural men and women constantly dismissed by society, health professionals and friends as needing support because they appear superficially to be okay. Join us for this week's episode as Shanna delves into her personal experience of hitting rock bottom, life after PTSD, and how she is actively working to inform others about the true face of what she calls casual alcoholism in rural Australia. Hello, Shan. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today, and thanks very much for uh, yeah sharing your story with our listeners and what you're up to. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Long time no speak. It's, um, it's good to be connected in these bizarre times. It is certainly bizarre, um, but something, uh, Shan, I know uh, that you are a passionate country girl who's uh, from the bush, passionate about the bush, um, but you also uh, are responsible for creating a conversation, uh, you know what, in some, in a lot of aspects, uh, a tough conversation to have, but um, but a highly necessary conversation nonetheless, and a movement that you've started creating with Sober in the Country and all the wonderful things that you're up to. So uh, I guess firstly, congratulations on on what you're doing and we're going to touch more base, uh, more about that shortly. 
But let's talk about your story, um, and I know that you've been, you know, on the Australian story that that was done, um, showcasing uh, your life, and very brave of you, and and courageous for you to be out there and putting yourself out there for everyone to see. But I mean, what what a story, um, and and it would have taken some guts to do that. So, firstly, congratulations congratulations on that. But but if you wouldn't mind, let's just touch base on where it all started. Oh, thanks, Sammy. And yeah, look, it's been an interesting, um, it's been an interesting six years. <laughs> that's for sure. I never, I never imagined this is what life would be. Um, but essentially, essentially, as you know, uh, my story is that I was an alcoholic in the country who nearly died. And, um, I call, call what I had a nasty case of invisible alcoholism where, you know, I was sort of presenting, as a successful business owner, operator, well-dressed, well-groomed, well-spoken human by day, um, but by night I was falling apart behind closed doors. Um, and I simply, as I'll say to anybody, I was a person who had been falling through the cracks for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I reckon I reckon my drinking was an issue for me as early as my early 20s, but in this country of ours that I love so much that really worships alcoholic drinking, um, I just never even looked at it until it nearly had me dead, to be honest. So it's a funny thing, isn't it, how, you know, you wake up one day and think, holy cow, I'm going to die. And there's a 20-year story behind that. And that's, it's so hard to summarise how how people get to where they get in, in, in a um, story of addiction. But for me, it was a 20-year story that began with trauma and ended with um, suicidal thoughts and a will to no longer want to even be here. And my very fortunate survival and full recovery from alcoholism has inspired me to basically do something good with something horrific to help other people. It's really a story of paying it forward. It's just a very simple... My, my backstory has become my front story and... It's the entire foundation of Sober in the Country, as you mentioned, which is today a national charity. But yeah, it all it all stems from a personal um, nightmare with alcohol. You know, I yeah. so the charity I created exists to reach people exactly like I was. Yeah, because as it turns out, it's very, very, very common that people in the bush are struggling with booze in various increments. Um. Yeah, is that is that? Yeah, no, that that's a, good, and I, I want to sort of touch on that a little bit more, I guess, in a second. But if if we, so I mean, I had a wonderful chat with Dr. Sky Saunders a few weeks ago, and she was talking about um, trying to change the conversation in rural Australia around females uh, and discrimination, harassment in the workplace, uh, that sort of thing. Tell us, as as someone who has grown up and lived the country life and been a female, mm. is how do you feel like we're going with this? Do you feel like with, um, uh, do you feel like we're on mm. the path? Do you feel like there's some changes being made with regards to women in the country uh, and the culture yeah. around that? That's a good question, actually, because as you know, but our listeners might not, um, the trauma I referenced earlier. And again, for those who don't know, trauma and addiction are very, very closely linked. And ironically, that's, it's just a perfect segue to discuss that part of the backstory, which is, for me, sexual assault and rape um, and, unfortunately, a few very awful experiences as a young woman in the agricultural sector. 
in an isolated situation in rural Australia. Um, and I mean, in 20 years, our world has shifted so dramatically because back when that was going on for me as an 18-year-old, dreadfully naive country girl, there were no mobile phones, there was no technology, and even um, more nightmarish than that, I didn't even actually have a vehicle on the isolated property that my traumas occurred on. So I was snookered. There's no, there was no escape. Um, and I think to answer your question, um, and and that that male-dominated environment that I grew up in was persistent my entire career in ag. Um, sexual harassment, um, sexism, etc., was rampant. And I need to say. I'm no, I'm no raging feminist. I love country blokes. I love them. I, country boys, country men are probably one of my favourite specimens in the cosmos. I just think they're the best thing since sliced bread. I love the honesty and the integrity and the stoicism and the quiet strength of the average of the country bloke. And you know my husband. You know exactly the kind of bloke I'm talking about. Yeah, no. <laughs> and you're one of those blokes. I just, I just think Aussie men are beautiful. And there's unfortunately a small element that um, will will drag an overall um, demographic down, which really sucks for the good people. Yeah. But yeah, sadly, because of that little rampant element that has always existed, if there's one area and one demographic in which it can kind of slip through the cracks, it's rural and remote Australia. So, um, so yeah, sorry to answer and, and your question. I think. Sorry, Sammy. No, I was going to say, do you feel like it's sort of getting, compared to, you know, growing mm. up, I mean, you spent a lot of your time, you know, working on farms uh, growing yeah. up when you left school, yeah. but do you yeah. feel like there's been a bit of a shift um, in rural Australia with regards to, you know, the approach and, and women in the workplace and respect and that sort of mm. thing? Yes, I do, mate. I do. I think there's a lot more accountability. There's a, a lot more... Um, Structure, framework, policy, OHS, all of that stuff has advanced dramatically. And in fact, if anything, sometimes I think, God, we've gone a bit mad in terms of all of those things. It's a really, really tricky balance, isn't it? Because none of us want to live in a nanny state mm -hmm. and none of us want to feel like we can't walk out a door without having to tick off, you know, safety boxes for every manoeuvre we're going to make for the rest of our lives. And that can feel like that, actually. Yeah. So it's kind of this tricky balancing act, I feel like we're in modern life, um, we can very easily tip into that kind of nanny state approach, which I'm personally not a fan of. But by the same token, <laughs> we need systems and checks and measures in place. So it's, it wouldn't it be nice to think that people were just good and decent and honourable and, you know, could follow common sense. Um, that doesn't always happen. So unfortunately, when women have been through situations like I did, you know, the yeah. system has had to change to ensure that doesn't happen to other young women. And so, yes, I think it has changed. Yes, I think it is better. Um, I think there is still a lot more work to be done. And I still will hear frequent stories where, um, yeah, my, my, um, ah, uh, my hackles rise and I think, God, how did that happen? You know, how did yeah. this kid fall into that trap in the year 2020? So we've still got a ways to go, but I definitely think it has changed. And I think country people are so bloody awesome at adapting and changing yeah. and stepping up. And when they have been given access to information and education, they will meet that challenge front on. But the trick is to get those conversations onto farms, onto remote stations, and into the ears of people who've never heard them. But I do firmly believe, Sammy, that with the right info, 
with the right education, people yeah. are great at stepping up in the country. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for your honesty and, and I can't agree more. I mean, the authenticity of people out in rural uh, and mm. remote Australia is what makes it so special and, and such mm. a heart and soul of the country. Tell me, um, so, I mean, the horrific event and traumatic events you had to experience – is that's what is that what you think, or that's what you now know triggered um, to lead into your binge drinking alcoholism? Is that is that the source? Hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't recognise it at the time, but if if forty six year old me looks back at eighteen year old me and I piece together, you know, those formative years as a young woman, there's no question about it. Um, none at all. And then, but it's it's a bit more complex than that. Like a lot of people think that if you're going to end up a raging suicidal alcoholic you have to have had a really brutal childhood and abuse in your life as a child or whatever but it's never that simple there are very 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 um, varied reasons as to why people end up where they do so for me I had a very privileged childhood by anybody else's standards I had um, I was sent off to a very fancy boarding school mm-hmm. um, I was given lots of amazing education opportunities and all that sort of thing but to me, ironically, that was actually not a good thing because I was a dreadfully homesick kid. So it's funny how that in itself had a really massive ne- negative impact on me. So I was a, a very lonely homesick kid at school, um, very naive. And back in the day, we were uh, we were under lock and key. It was pretty draconian um, how things went back in the day. Um, I, I don't have fond memories whatsoever of boarding school. Yeah. And when you get let out of a really hardcore lockdown environment like that, you've got no social skills, you've got no life skills, and letting me out the front gates of boarding school was like letting a bloody spring lamb out into <laughs> a paddock full of sheepdogs. It was always going to end badly. Um, yeah, I had, I just had no idea, Sammy, and I just rushed headlong into disaster, and it probably was always going to happen. Um, I just had no idea, no idea. Anyway, so it was a culmination of naivety, lack of social awareness, uh, lack of worldliness thrown into an environment. Yes, I landed in a particularly bad situation with a pretty pretty bad crew um, and some things happened that were definitely, uh, should have resulted in legal action and all sorts of stuff. But I, I think it was a culmination of many factors. Yeah. But the end result was a kid, and let's face it, when you're 18, you're a kid, um, was a frightened kid in the middle of nowhere with no escape. Um, but what was readily available was the hiding behind a screen of alcohol at parties and social events. And the concurrent theme through my 20s as I kind of went through that and went to university and went into the workforce and went into a male-dominated agricultural sector, the concurrent theme through all of that was if you drank and you partied hard, you were part of the crew. Mm. And something I craved more than anything was to be loved, to be accepted. accepted yeah. yeah, I just wanted to fit in. I already felt like a misfit everywhere I went. But ironically, people perceived that I was confident and secure within myself because I was, I was an attractive, blonde, outgoing person in the eyes of other people. But inside, what I felt was ugly, out of place, massive misfit. Um, and so I drank to to mask all of that bizarre insecurity um, and to fit in and to 
I don't know, just to follow the crowd, I was, I'll often refer to myself as a performing monkey. Like whatever the crowd yeah. said was what I would do. Because if that made me popular and accepted, that's all I could cope with. Yeah. I didn't have any backbone to be my own human. I was just a follower, you know. Um, so, yeah, it just began as hiding behind beers at social events. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the scale of addiction begins as that, but it ends as another thing. So it's a sliding scale. And with each passing year and each passing hurdle and hiccup, <laughs> alcohol became my go-to to cope socially, mm. to fit in with work, um, to to... It was just the heart and soul of everything I did was alcohol. Um, and there's only so long you can do that before it sinks its hooks in as an addictive substance. And that's what happens. What happens, you know? Uh, over the, um, over the 20 years, I mean, did you, did it just start out as, you know, one night a week? And then all of a sudden, like, was there a, a progressive yeah. spiral that was happening over the course of that? Or was it constant throughout the whole period? No, and that's a really good question because a lot of people, um, they people desperately, particularly those, those struggling themselves with alcohol, they want to know what does it look like? How does it? What is, how do I know if it's a problem? And it's an FAQ we get is how do I know? How many drinks do you have to drink? Um, for me, and I am not indicative of all people by any stretch, but yeah. for me, yeah, it began as Friday nights with the boys down at the shed after work because I was in this male-dominated environment in the country space. And all Friday afternoons were punctuated by beers in the workshop or beers on the back of the ute in the paddock or beers down at the pub. Whatever it is, it was always beers, it was always rum, it was always a big night out. So, you know, it was weekend binging in my country days, um, in my youth. At university, it was multiple binges each week yeah. um, in my mid-twenties. And when I say binges, Sammy, it might have been... You know, you might go out and have a meal at the pub with friends, but you might not get home till one o'clock and you come staggering through the door and then compare stories about who got home and how and when, and it's all fun and games, you know. Yeah. Um, and then in your mid-twenties, it's work catch-ups at the pub or work functions or weddings or um, 18th or 21st. And again, every single social occasion in the country was was driven by alcohol, like nothing that I ever did in the country was a, a wholesome get-together without grog at the front and centre of it. So there was never a shortage of opportunities to get on the beers. <laughs> and, um, but it was only, you know, one or three nights a week, let's say. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that as my 20s progressed and I had a – my nightmare personal situation just plagued me through my whole 20s. It was – I call it the decade of disaster. It was just a terrible, terrible decade. Um, and I was just struggling so badly the whole time. And I noticed that after one really, really horrible, um, I'd fallen into an abusive relationship, which is also part of the course. For girls like me, you know, we, we, we tend to keep landing in the same destructive pattern. Um, yeah. And I'd been just, Oh goodness gracious. I just had such a dreadful time. And, I escaped that situation, but I was very damaged mentally. And so I found that I was cracking a bottle of wine after work at five o'clock. And, you know, five o'clock became wine o'clock. And then it was one glass every afternoon. And then it was two glasses every afternoon and so on. Yeah. And basically, if you look at the sliding scale of addiction in the life of me, it was partying and binging. Then it was wine every afternoon. 
then it was two, three, and so forth. And at the end, what was extraordinary about – I never actually knew I was an alcoholic um, because I thought you had to drink during the day or drink in the morning or drink every day or get drunk every day. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly thought that's what had to happen for you to be classified as an alcoholic or someone suffering extreme alcohol use disorder, as, as it's now referred to. But I, I actually, because I was conscious that I was drinking too much, I could string months together at the end, weeks, months, um, because I was always trying to do that because I knew there was an issue. Mm. <laughs> but as soon as I touched a bottle, as soon as I opened a bottle and poured that first glass, what it was like in the end for me is I could not drink without blacking out. Yeah. So typically that looked like two bottles of wine at the end, um, halfway into my third. But I might not do it for days on end. But the end result was if I touched alcohol, there was going to be a blackout and that was as guaranteed as could be. I could not I couldn't not get blackout drunk in the end. What age were you around when you was doing the when you started blacking out while you were drinking? Oh, I'd I had started that at university. That okay. was but it was only at a big party or a big event or yeah. a wedding and we were all doing it. We would all have conversations about, oh, my God, does anyone even remember this or how did we get home? So it wasn't a red flag at that point because we were all bloody doing it, which is tragic because, you know, that was a problem then, but none of us knew it. Um, When I knew it was a problem was I was the only one doing it in our, say say your late 20s or your 30s, people are starting to get engaged, settle down, and you're the one who's consistently, consistently the messiest at the party (laughs) or passing out on the couch while everyone's up till two o'clock and you're you know you've hit your limit at 9 30 p.m and someone's dragging you off and putting you in the spare bedroom because you've had a shocker and you know um so I noticed that I always drank faster and got drunk more quickly and got messier than everybody I just it was very clear that my drinking was another level from Oh, I don't know, mid twenties, I reckon, Sammy. Yeah. And so you had that the self awareness at the time. You knew something was wrong, mm. but you mm. at that point you hadn't said anything. You just sort of kept doing it. Is that correct? Yeah, I just, you know, like I, I, I would be filled with humiliation and disbelief that I'd gone and done something like promiscuous or yeah. stupid or risky. Or let's say I'd met a really lovely guy and thought, oh man, he's a really nice guy. But then I'd go and get outrageously drunk and do or say something stupid and ruin it and just, oh, my God, just consistently humiliating myself. Um, yeah, and I just couldn't – but I couldn't – it's like I'd say to myself every weekend, Shanna, don't do that again. And I would do it again and again and again. I had no control. Like I had no – and I thought it was a lack of willpower, a lack of self-control. I thought I was maybe just a shit person. I I just couldn't understand it. And now I understand. I was just addicted to alcohol. I couldn't stop. Were there people in your life that were trying to intervene or trying to get you help back then? In in my 20s, not so much because we were all doing it. Yeah. In my 30s, people were starting to express concern. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in my mid-30s, it was impacting friendships, health, work, etc. So again, the sliding scale of addiction is it get, becomes progressively worse. Um, yeah, so with each passing year, the red flags were bigger, the mortifying incidents were more frequent, the, the consequences were more severe. So, um, you know, accidents, 
all of a sudden ending up in emergency because I've fallen down a bloody flight of stairs or I've, you know, um, oh, God, whatever you can think of, just stupid things are more and more frequent. Yeah. Um, but here's the flip side of addiction. I, like all people who are addicted to alcohol, I systematically, subconsciously chose to associate with other big drinkers because they enabled me to continue my behaviour without challenging me because yeah. they were in the same situation. And you might notice them in country towns that really, really, really chronic drinkers hang out with really chronic drinkers. You don't see mm. chronic drinkers hanging out with um, fitness enthusiasts generally. Like attracts like. And so I was, I was systematically hanging out with other really major drinkers and they didn't say it was a problem because they didn't want to know it was a problem either. So... I kind of got into that classic alcoholic behavior where anyone who challenged me, I pushed them away yeah. or I isolated myself from them. And so in the end, it was really only my beautiful husband and my family who were starting to see the rapid decline and degradation of me because I'd removed myself from social situations where people could see it. Yeah. And that's also classic alcoholic behavior. We remove ourselves from the shame and we start drinking behind closed doors in our own home because nobody's going to challenge us. Nobody's going to pull us up. Um, it's so it's so sad, Sammy, how it works. It is so sad. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously a big reason for your crusade with what you're doing today. But if we go to mm. the point mm. of at some point something stopped and it, do you just want to shed a bit of light on, I mean, I, yeah. I know, but I, for our listeners, mm. tell us yeah. about what, what made you take a get get an have an opportunity to say, well, you know what, this has to stop, and I'm going to draw a line mm -hmm. in the sand and say no more. Tell tell me mm. what got you to that point. Well, I hate to say it, but I was one of those people who I had to hit rock bottom. I had to hit rock bottom. I couldn't pull myself out of it, and it had to come down to life or death for me, literally. And that. That for me was another drinking accident where I did in fact nearly break my neck falling down the flight of stairs. Um, and I woke up in emergency with a bunch of strangers and drips and God knows what hanging out of me and my divine, beautiful husband standing over me with just despair, just despair all over his face. And I knew he was broken. Um, and so it was a classic, classic situation of I was... I was, I thought, oh, wow. You know, I'd sort of been trapped in a really bizarre cycle up to then where I didn't really want to live, but I didn't really want to die. I was stuck in hell, you know, in this in-between miserable hell of not knowing what to do. And I will forever be so grateful that I finally just smacked the bottom of the barrel because I suddenly saw there were two choices left. You will die or you will not die. <laughs> Yeah. I, I just knew I just knew I was at the end of myself. I knew I was going to die young. In fact, I was quite sure of it. Because you had so, a, an issue with your liver too, didn't you? No, I actually, oh. weirdly enough, and this is this is a crazy thing, Sammy. My doctors would always look at me because I looked normal, and my blood tests were not abnormal. I don't understand how that is. I think it's because I was one of these weirdos who was a health freak by day and a drunk by night. Honestly, um, it's really hard to explain that to this day. I didn't have major outward signs of illness, if that makes sense. Okay. I, I don't know how that is, and I think it's just by the grace of God and the fact that 
when I wasn't in cycles of drunkenness, I was actually looking after myself and that possibly was what saved my life. So very bizarre, very bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, I, um, but I knew I was only one bender away from either crashing my car, killing someone else, killing myself, committing suicide. We're not allowed to say that anymore. Sorry. Taking my own life. Um, I knew I was just one step away from death. I just knew it with this blood curdling certainty. And that was enough to push me to reach out and do what I hadn't done until that point, which is to ring um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I did. And I was very, very fortunate that that phone call ended up in me being given the number of a lady who was a country woman. And it was really, what's really funny about this is when I rang AA, they said, oh, look, good on you for calling. You know, that's so great we'll just have a quick look on our system and we'll find the nearest meeting and we'll get you sorted in no time and you'll soon see there'll be something in your area that will give you a bit of help. And and then he sort of awkwardly went, oh, uh, the nearest one's 300 kilometres away. Where do you live again? (laughs) (laughs) And I went, oh, God, here we go. Story of my life. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, so then then what happened? (laughs) So then you went to, you you found someone though in Narrabri, didn't you? Yeah, no, no, I was given the number of a girl from Tamworth. So it was a four-hour round trip to get to this girl, but I made that trip. And, yeah, look, the long story short is that Rock Bottom led led me to reaching out, which led me to meeting this extraordinary woman. And the very, very crux of the whole story of my recovery is that for the first time in my life, in that whole process of meeting a recovered alcoholic, was I was given hope. And I connected with someone for the very first time in my whole alcoholic journey who looked and sounded and walked and talked like me now I have to say I was going to buy into the stigma that we all buy into I was expecting to meet um, somebody with holes in their coat who was down and out and homeless and wrecked and you know what that's I was only five minutes off probably being that person so I don't say that with judgment why I'm saying that is that is the stigma and the stereotype I was expecting yeah and instead, out of the door of the building that day, after we'd driven a couple of hundred k's, walks this lovely, young, healthy, glowing, radiant, well-dressed, well-spoken woman and a gorgeous country bloke came out with her. And I just looked straight past them because I was like, well, that's obviously not who we're meant to meet. And then it was. And I went, hang on a minute, you two? <laughs> it was like meeting a mirror image of Tim and I. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm better than anyone, but I'm just saying because in my end stage alcoholism, I didn't look like what I thought that was meant to look like. It was such a massive shock for me to meet these two people who smiled and shook our hands and said, yeah, I'm Ali and I'm Dan and we're recovered alcoholics. And I went, what? Are you kidding me? I guess my brain couldn't cope with the fact that they too had been there. I just, it was just like a, it was like a miracle in front of my eyes that just stopped me in my tracks. And yeah, look, that was the turning point, Sammy. I, I met with somebody who I identified with in every way, shape, and form. And thanks to that extraordinary meeting, um, they started to just show me that there was a way out. They showed me that I actually wasn't the only person in this battle. They showed me what it meant. They gave me an education. They gave me a foundation. They filled me in on how this bloody awful mongrel disease works. They spoke truth in a way that made sense to me and they were the turning point. They were the foundation of of my way out and it came down to connection. 
Um, yeah, un- un- unbelievable. It was that simple, you know. And so was that was that then the last time you ever you ever drank alcohol? Is that is that like when well, you were in yeah. <laughs> For me, the, the, yeah, um, there was a few weeks lag time, but yes, basically, after I'd met with these guys and I sat with them, and I remember we sat under a tree for several hours, just talking, 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 talking. And it was like, honestly, it was just like they just filled my heart and soul with hope. It was just extraordinary. And then they invited me to come and sit in on a meeting that um, my mate Ali ran, an AA meeting that she ran as a volunteer. And I went into that meeting. And it was funny, again, again, I felt like I was plonked in a position where it was like option A, take the wide road, take the same road you've always taken, or option B, take this hard road and change it all. And in that meeting that day, I felt I was being presented with those same two options. And when Ali invited me to share, as it's called, you know, part of me was like, oh, God, no, I don't want to stand up in front of a group full of strangers and do this. What the hell, you know? Like that part of me instinctively kicked, kicked back. And then the survival part of me went, stand up and do this now. If you do not grab this opportunity, you are done. Yeah. So I did. I stood up in front of a group of strangers. And I simply, I simply, I simply said what I'd never been able to say before. And I said, my God, yeah, um, I totally, I totally am an alcoholic. Everything you've all been saying to me is me. Mm. And if that's what it is, then that's what it is. And I'm bloody well going to own up to it. And I'm going to face it in the eye. And I'm going to let you people who've come through this teach me how it's done. And I just, it's very cheesy recovery talk, but I surrendered to the truth. I just surrendered to the truth in that moment. And um, it was a bit of a miracle story for, for Tim and I because I don't know what happened there, Sammy, but it was just a very spiritually profound moment in my life because I, I literally, in my heart and soul, I just gave it up on the spot. I just went, that is it. Mm. I can't do this anymore. I cannot. I do not want this. I do not choose this any longer. And I just, something very dramatic shifted in my brain. And that was the last time I thought about alcohol. I went home that night and I fell into a very deep sleep, very deep sleep, (laughs) which I don't remember the last time I fell asleep peacefully without alcohol. And the next day when I woke up, I knew something had shifted. I just knew it. But Having said that, I did exactly what all the people who'd gone before me that were old, you know, old school, um, successfully um, sober people, I gathered them and I said, tell me what to do. And I listened and I acted and I pulled my bloody finger out and I got to work. And I, um, I took a year, I carved a year out of my life. Um, at the time, I was a really successful photographer, traveling a lot. And I said to my friend, Ali Rotto, what do I do? And she said, you need to not be traveling. You need to focus on nothing other than your sobriety because otherwise, Shan, you're not going to get there. Like you need to take this as a life and death project. This is your chance. And I went, Rodeo. So I literally, I stopped traveling. I cut out most of my work unless I could do it safely. I moved house to a place that didn't have a horrendous memory association. I did every single thing I could to give myself a fighting chance. I stacked the odds in my favour. I listened, I asked, I worked and it was everything changed, you know, everything changed and I, and I came through it. I came through the war. Yeah. Um, it was it, amazing. It's incredible, uh, an incredible story with an amazing outcome and 
I guess uh, if you wouldn't mind shedding a bit of light on mm. the, the, the troubles or the challenges of being in rural Australia and trying to get mm. help. I mean, you had to travel 400 kilometres yep. um, yep. round yep. trip to be able to seek help. Was that, was that mm. something that was ongoing throughout your treatment throughout that year and your recovery period or was it? Um, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, look, it was. Um, in the end, I started a recovery meeting here in my little country town because that's what a few people suggested. They said, well, why don't you start one? And I went, oh, my God, that's a great idea. All right, then how do I do that? So I did that. And the long story short is nobody came to that little recovery meeting, really, like a few people here and there. But really, it was two years of my life spent sitting and waiting and hoping and hoping. <laughs> yeah. And what I understand now is that we are grossly under-resourced and grossly under-equipped in the country to tackle addiction when it is actually at the heart and soul of our social fabric. Mm. And the other problem is that um, models like AA, which, by the way, I think AA has tremendous things to offer a lot of people. I'm a big supporter of it. Problem is, problem is the model of anonymity is not going to work when you can't be anonymous. And that's basically one of the biggest problems we have in rural Australia, and I worked that out the hard way myself, unless you can get up and drive several hundred kilometres to go to an area where you're moderately unknown, which yeah. even then is a risk. <laughs> it's even a risk then, obviously. Um, you can't you can't go to your own town. So, so the, the problems are not just geographical isolation, but they are the security of getting help while you learn how to overcome the fear in this space. And most people need time to find their feet, get comfortable, get acquainted with all the terminology and talk and realise they're actually not salty. And I need to say here and now, there is nothing unique about my story. This is what blows my mind. My story is not unique. I am not unique. I am not special. My story is indicative of a huge, 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 percentage of men and women all over rural and regional Australia and that's the reason the conversations have gone so far and so wide is not because I'm special but because my story is so bloody common that's yeah. why but no one else talks about it because we've been indoctrinated to not speak about our fight with addiction we can speak all day every day about being party hard Australians that's fine that's hilarious we can compare horror stories about getting home drink driving to our kids because that's hilarious. We can compare who vomited on who. That's hilarious. But we can't talk about being an alcoholic because that's terrible and it's bad and it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. So we have this insane set of double standards in the country where we worship alcoholic drinking over here on the one hand, but on the other hand, we demonize and ostracize an actual alcoholic. And often there's like a thin fabric separating the two. So the odds are stacked against anybody seeking help and support. They're so stacked. Yeah. There's so many challenges, Sammy. It's overwhelming and so, yeah. It's what about tough. the stigma though? Like, I mean, you mentioned before, I mean, even mental health, um, you know, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety as well, trying mm -hmm. to get help in a, yeah. in a community, like a small town where yeah. everyone knows the psychologist car park, they see whose <laughs> car's parked in there. I mean, yeah. people will yeah. park blocks away and walk um, yep. and or, or drive a couple of hundred kilometres because yep. no yep. one will know them in that other town. And yep. uh, But, I mean, it's such a, a barrier, isn't it? Oh, tragically it is, yeah. And and, and that's, a, that's a crazy thing. Um, 
oh, if we could just have fair income conversations with people, if you could just give them, you know, info and education. But historically, we haven't been able to do that because, yeah, Sammy Stewart knows Shanna Wan, who knows Joe Blow, whose uncle is the psychologist, whose best mate, oh, my God, bang, you just, you have no chance. You have no chance of getting through unscathed or talked about. And people's fear of the stigma around that is generally enough to prevent them from seeking help. So it's barrier after barrier after barrier. And so what happens is people will make a couple of attempts and they'll either get knocked down or they'll have a negative experience and they'll just retreat to what they know, which is going, well, I tried and it's all too hard, so stuff it. I'll just see what I've always done, which is drink my feelings. Yeah. Um, it's a terrible, terrible situation. And, you know, it's funny, the whole time I was sitting here for two years opening a building and baking scones and ringing people I knew, I knew were struggling with grog. And I'd say, do you want me to collect you? No, someone will see me. <laughs> okay. What about if you um, come to my house? Oh, no, someone will see me. <laughs> yeah. um, people's fear is so huge. It's so huge. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an absolute nightmare. Whereas, say in the city, let's say, let's say you were in Pitt Street in Sydney, pre-COVID, yeah. <laughs> um, you could Google one of 20 bloody five anonymous meetings and go and have a whale of a time and meet people and know that you're pretty secure. So it's an awesome, it's an awesome model when you live in a dense population. But out here, it's an epic fail, epic fail. Um, yeah. It's just not it, going to happen. It, it, and you've taken matters, um, you know, a, a girl that, that walks the, you know, walks the talk, mm. you've actually mm. taken matters in your own hand for the last six or probably more than six years. But before I get on to what you're doing now, yeah. t- just tell yeah. me, Timmy's been such a, a big part of your mm-hmm. life. Um, yes. Tell me how critical that support role and having, I assume he was a big part of your why, yes. why you wanted to, to get yes. healthy and, and, and get off the grog. But tell us about that role and how, how important that has been in your journey. Oh, and thank you for asking that, Sammy, because you know Timbo personally and you know the yeah. caliber of that man. Um, it was everything. Without Tim, I'd be dead. Um even though my recovery came down to my choice, my action and my uh, willingness, he hung in there and believed in me. Um, and I think without his faith to have gotten me through those last sort of hurdles, I would have most certainly taken my own life and given up or I'd be currently probably selling my soul on the streets to feed my habit. I don't know where it would have ended in absolute hell on earth. I know there's no doubt about that. Mm. So Timbo... Um, Having family love and support was everything. It was absolutely critical. But I tell you what, um, oh, man, I tell you what, (laughs) I would never have blamed Tim or any of my family if they turned their back on me because the disease of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or gambling or whatever, it will destroy families. And my behaviour in those end stages was just horrific. I was such a horrid person and that's what addiction does because you know this is why they say never give an addict an ultimatum because I'll always choose the substance mm-hmm. over the loved one it's heartbreaking but yeah anyway that's going down another wormhole but yeah mate um Tim was Timbo was everything um and I credit everything including our charity to him he was the foundation of it all and I just think I think our story is very much a miracle because we shouldn't be here we shouldn't be here and um and yet we are, and and that's probably a nice segue into how the charity began because um, when we came through it and, and, and we just knew we were going to make it, and a lot of people don't make it, a lot of people don't make it, 
um, we made a conscious decision and Timmy and I both share a space and um, we just literally came to the same conclusion that we would do everything we could to use our second chance to help other people. That's what we knew with all our hearts many years ago. We just went, right, we've got to make this count. Yeah. Yeah, uh, truly special. remarkable man. And, I mean, the patience, yeah. um, perseverance yeah. and support, yeah. you know, Incredible. for him to let you go through what you went through and be ready mm. and supporting you when you were ready mm. is mm. is absolutely amazing. So um, big shout out oh, to Timmy. Right. But, but tell, yeah. tell, tell us about Sober in the Country now and what we're doing What yeah. as yeah. being part of the solution. Tell, tell us yeah. what's going on. Well, so the thing, like like we've just been talking about, um, the thing is um, I, I saw with my own eyes going through overcoming alcoholism in isolation. I was like, this is ridiculous. It is so ridiculous, the obstacles and the hurdles. This is just such a mess. Like how many other Shannons are out there in exactly the same position as me? <laughs> And it doesn't take long when you're in recovery from addiction to look around you and see everyday people in everyday situations and you can just pick it at a thousand paces. And all of a sudden my eyes were wide open and I was like, holy shit, half of our population is an alcoholic, <laughs> literally. Yeah. It is so heartbreaking to see how many people in our country towns are trapped in a terribly, terribly destructive um, habit with alcohol. It's just so obvious once your eyes are open to it. Anyway, um, but Sham, we're not we're not and, just talking about people that are drinking from breakfast time. Right? No, that, we're not. And this is the unassuming part, isn't it? Yep, yep. We're talking about we're talking about the fact that um, just an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. One of the funny things that you begin to realise is that um, excessive alcohol abuse is actually pretty much our societal norm in the rural space. Um, you know, national safety guidelines and whatever mean nothing. It's literally a laughing stock, you know. Like, how many times have you heard a mate from the bush go, oh, I'll get, I'll get a six-pack before I get to the front gate because that'll just wash the dust down, for example, you know. <laughs> we, we drink massive amounts of grog in the bush. It's just a fact. It's just a simple known fact. So, um, yeah, most most people will think that um, addictive behaviour or alcoholism is, is that crazy you know, that crazy daytime drinking or first thing in the morning. And it's anything but that. It's anything but that. And so as I was as I was coming through my own recovery um, and I was sort of looking around me, I just, it was just astonishing to me to see the reality of our culture. Once you step back from it and you yeah. stop drinking yourself, it's suddenly like you've landed on an alien planet. Because, because and you, you would know this yourself, um, you suddenly think, oh, um, if I go to this or this or that or that, or if I take part in A, B, C, X, Y, Z, they're all set. They're all bloody built around grog. Um, oh crap! What am I going to do with myself? Yeah. <laughs> and this is just a pervasive culture that is like literally at the heart and soul of our entire structure of country life. Um, yeah, so. It's almost oh, like you need, need to reprogram yourself, isn't it? Because <laughs> your association with things was always something with drinking alcohol, yeah. but then all of a sudden you're now trying to change that experience um, and sometimes the people around you don't like it as much, which means naturally yeah. you're, you're, the people you're surrounding yourself with sometimes changes as a result of that as well. 
Yeah, so it was fascinating, a really fascinating thing. And I, I thought I kind of, um, yeah, and I'll, I'll probably go backwards a few steps because it's, it's handy to lead into how the charity began. But um, here I was, a newly sober person in the country, looking around me and just going, holy cow, it's actually going to be like learning to walk all over again. I've got to find out where I fit. I've got to find out how this works. I've got no idea how this works. This is overwhelming. <laughs> and um, so I basically spent several years just, um, you know, working my bum off on, on learning how to live sober in the country and just endless challenges associated around that. Like I had to, I couldn't socialise at night anymore because it was too risky. You know, I had to steer clear of pubs. I had to steer clear of clubs. I had to steer clear of social events, races, rugby, you name it, because the whole lot of it was so booze-focused and so booze-centric. It was just simply too risky. And as any person who's been through recovery will say, you have to really carefully avoid certain things in your first sort of year or so. And basically, I had to eliminate myself from life for a year. Um, and I just couldn't stop thinking, bloody hell, this is just ridiculous. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's got to be there's got to be more to life than the fact that if you don't drink in the country, you're now like the equivalent to a leper. Like, this is just insane. But that's how I felt. It's exactly how I felt. And I started to, um, as you know, Sammy. Although having said that, I should I should I felt very joyful at the same time because for the first time in my life, my eyes were starting to be open to what it felt like to be clear headed and regaining health and falling back into good sleep patterns. So despite the fact that socially I was feeling very outcast, I was starting to feel really good within myself. Mm. Um, and I just, my brain, I couldn't switch my brain off. Um, and as I looked around, I thought, I'm going to just, you know, I tried I tried to run a meeting. I tried lots of things. I tried health coaching, you know, because I knew the whole time in those first several years of my recovery that, my commitment that I had made to Tim and myself was that I wanted to help other people. But those first few years of attempts were failed, big failed. AA failed, trying to help people one-on-one -on -one failed, trying to go through it from a health coach angle failed. I was like, no, nah, it's not for me. And in the end, I was sitting there going, Jesus, I'm 40 years of age. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't have children. I don't drink. Um, I'm a qualified journalist. I'm a pretty good public speaker. What the hell am I going to do with my life? I just couldn't stop thinking, what am I going to do with the next half of my life? Yeah. Um, and I went, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just use all of those skills in, in recovery somehow. So I started just writing blogs. And in the end, I chose to blow my own anonymity sky high. I went, you know what? This is so stupid. Everybody who knew me knew that I was in trouble. Everybody knew something was wrong. What the hell am I even pretending to hide from anyway? And I went, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of living undercover. So I came out of the closet and went, guess what, everyone? You know how I was always having injuries and mysterious things and this and that? Well, because I was a raging alcoholic, so there you go. How about that for a bit of juicy gossip? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, of course, no one was shocked. Everyone was like, yeah, shit, as we knew something was going on. And, wow, didn't know it was that bad. And you know what? 99.9% of people were like, wow, good on you for bloody coming out and saying that. That's, that's massive. Anyway, um, I just started um, writing about my experience as, a, as an alcoholic with a career in the country who was undercover and invisible. And it sort of all began there. Um, yeah, and uh, 
And one thing led to another. Sorry. That wouldn't have been easy for you to be able to come out in a community that know you. Hmm. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, that... It would have been. It would have taken some serious courage to do that. You know what, Sammy? In in the end, in the end, uh, it was easy because the truth is just so much better than living a lie. Yeah. So in the end, I don't think it took courage. I think it just. I think it was just total freedom. Actually, I I don't feel courageous for what I did. Yeah. I felt kind of ordained to do it. That, that sounds really full on cheesy, but I just. It just felt right. I thought, you know what? Like, honestly, I have no children to humiliate. My husband supports me. Everyone who is close to me knew there was a very serious problem and anyone else in town was just having a bloody good gossip. So what have I got to lose? Like, these people don't care about me who are gossiping. My family does care. So, like, honestly, there's nothing, there is nothing to lose from being truthful. Like, not a thing. So... I don't know, Sammy. I don't feel like it was courageous, but I understand why people think it was. But I don't feel like I deserve that um, label because I just think it was just truth, you know. And and that was the funny thing. And I would see people down the street and they'd say, God, Shan, I've been reading what you've been putting online and it's unreal. And could you please keep going because I'm finding it very helpful for my friend or sister or self or whatever. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, thank you. That's so nice to know. Yeah. And they'd always say, man, I I so just love what you're writing, but I don't want to comment because what would people say? What would people say if I commented on your blog? And I went, oh, my God, the fear is so massive. These poor buggers are too frightened to even comment. And so I I then created – so at that stage, I just had a Facebook page called Sober in the Country, Mm -hmm. and I just put my thoughts there. And then – because I can, I just kept getting bombarded down the street by people saying, love what you're writing, too scared to comment. So I created a private page that ran under the main page. And then I shared with the main page followers that I had. I said, hey, guys, a lot of you have been telling me that you're really enjoying the conversations and you want to get involved, but you feel far too nervous. So voila, I've created a, a group over here. If you want to come and have a yarn without fear of persecution, knock yourselves out. And it all began there. And suddenly that little page just went whooshka. (laughs) And it all, and that's how a national charity was founded, to be honest, Sammy. It was a a, a connection point that I created for rural people thinking, oh, look, I might get half a dozen mates in on here. And won't that be nice? Maybe we can all go and have a cup of tea and have a yarn about how hard it is to be sober in the country. (laughs) And it just took off, you know. And so, it just took and, off. and so there's obviously a gap that needed to be filled that mm. sober in the country um, that fills. What what was because you mentioned AA, but you had to drive mm. a couple of hundred kilometres for that. Mm. Tell us yep. what this does differently to to other, um, you know, alcoholics or uh, anonymous or or the other mm. yep. uh, preventative uh, recovering yep. options. So I would probably so I probably just proceed that by saying it, t- it took me many many years from um first year of sobriety to um inception of a national charity like there's a massive chunk of time in between the two yeah. um but sober in the country as a charity today exists to yeah to address the invisible demographic of rural men and women hardworking, busy you know rural men and women slipping through the cracks so what we realised and what I realised was 
if they can't get to the conversation, it's pretty simple. Why don't we use technology and take the conversation to them? Yeah. Like, for God's sake, it's not that hard. So it's, it was a simple case of taking just real talk and authentic information and education online and giving it to people. And as I said, I just did that through really honest, real talk from a recovering alcoholic's perspective because it was so raw. It was so, yeah. so raw. Um, and so the gap we're filling, I believe, Sammy, is just real talk from peers within the rural space. Yeah. So I need to say here, recovery is not new. Services and support are not new. Um, ambassadors across the globe are not new. Nothing I'm doing is actually new at all. But what I am doing that is new is really laser focusing a chat onto a rural demographic. That's what Sober in the Country is all about. Like I'll, I'll often say to people, um, we're not here to reinvent a wheel that's already been invented. That would be stupid. Yeah. We actually work really closely with existing um, alcohol awareness charities and services all over Australia. We're specifically collaborative and aligned with all of them now. But what we do that no one else has done is we make it very, very tailored to the bush sector because yeah. no one looks at that. Nobody looks at it. Um, yeah, so basically the gap we feel is putting a bush experience and bush people together in a space and saying this is just for you guys because you're because Sammy Stewart's experience might be different to Joe Blow from Sydney's and someone from the East Coast and whatever. Yeah. But most rural and remote people and I, I have to always qualify it's very busy, hard working people. Because they can't leave their farm. They can't leave their business. They can't leave their children. They can't leave their situation to drive eight thousand oh sorry, eight hundred or a thousand Ks to the nearest major centre. They can't they can't just say to someone, Hey, come and feed the sheep for three days while I do a quick round trip to see a psych. They just can't do it. Yeah. Um and the bizarre set of circumstances and challenges of overcoming addiction in isolation are insurmountable to them and our government is really not looking at it with anywhere near the weight that's required either. No one, just no one looks at it. It's crazy. So that's what we do. That's how it kind of ended up being a very specific charity for a very specific demographic. But also I think, Shan, is one, part of the reason that's doing so well as well is, is your drive. So, I mean, you are a person <laughs> who's, you're not saying no, you're knocking on doors. You are someone that is driving this thing all the way yeah. to the end yeah. because you, you know if you can save one person uh, from exactly. doing it, I don't know you're doing more than that, but I mean, it, it is it is following the, the path and the purpose of what you and Tim have set out to achieve. But I think that's why it resonates with people as well because you're, you're a real person. You tell it how it is and you're up front with people and I think that that's yeah. what people dig about it. It, it is. It's, it's a real yeah. person telling a real story but helping people. And, and I agree, Sammy, and it could be anyone and this is, this is why I'm always at pains to say there's nothing special or unique about me and I believe that is why it works. It's because I'm just one of us. Whereas a lot of what happens and is filtered down into the rural space is driven by someone in inner city Canberra with yeah. shiny boots who's actually never set foot beyond the farm gate or into a small town. They just and that's no fault of their own. They don't live in that lifestyle. Yeah. Um and I believe lived experience and really seriously authentic talk in this space is just horrendously lacking because we'll see things come through that filter down from Australian government and say, Did you know that more than two standard drinks per day is harmful? And it's like, whatever means nothing to us it's just not in a it's not in a language or a style 
or a format that is deliverable or, or it just doesn't. It just doesn't have any impact on whatsoever. Um, and it's funny, if you look around, you would know that there are some amazing charities like, for example, you would have heard of Hello Sunday Morning, I assume. Yes. Yeah, so today we work really closely with Hello Sunday Morning and many years ago I reached out to them and I said, guys, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, I love what you're up to, love it so much, but there's no rural kind of vibe going on and can I work with you on that because I think you might find there's a huge demographic that won't relate to some of this. Yeah. And they and anyway, many years later we, we work together. Um, and it's just brilliant. I'm their rural ambassador. They flick people my way, I flick people their way, and we do what we can to work together because they acknowledge that they're, you know, they more they have more of a city vibe. Yeah. So again, again, the people within our community all share the same backstory, um, and it's just amazing, Sammy. Like today in 2020, and this is what I often say to people. It took me 15,000 volunteer hours, knockback after knockback, failure after failure. I went around in circles for a long time. And and someone the other day said, oh, who is this overnight success? And I laughed and went, overnight success? Geez, <laughs> do you want to come and have a coffee with me and we'll talk about how hard this has been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's I, insane. And mm. I know that you <laughs> haven't had an easy path and that's what something mm. that I think is – what I certainly admire about you as a person, but also mm-hmm. the the campaign that you're you're on at the moment, which is a a lasting national voice um, and movement, which is really critical. But I mean, I know mm-hmm. you guys are doing a lot more than I mean. You're, you're very uh, you're doing broad scale advocacy out there. You're yep. also yep. highly collaborative with a lot of the leading uh, national bodies yep. as well. Uh, you're yep. doing a lot of media, um, but yep. also. Your rural peer support network, the Bush Tribe. Tell us a bit about that. Ah, thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, so again, everything we everything this charity does is trial and error and listening. Basically, we're we're creating we're creating things that have never been seen or done. So it's kind of like a team effort where we try this, fix that, tweak that, go here, go there. We're pioneering all of this stuff. Um, the Bush Tribe is a culmination of three years of us having chats online. Firstly, through my Facebook page, Sober in the Country, as Shanna the Volunteer, then as a charity, and then, as we said a minute ago, the little group that was private underneath it all. What we found was um, heaps of people were going, oh, Shanna, I love being in the Bush Tribe private group, but um, I kind of know too many people now because <laughs> rural Australia is so bloody tiny. Yeah. You might be 5,000 k's apart, but you still know Joe Blow because he also works in cattle or beef or, or wheat or whatever or hospitality, it's just crazy, you know, it's zero degrees of separation. So the Bush Tribe initially was just a Facebook um, group for everyone to chat, but we quickly realised we had to create the option for people to come in and be totally anonymous and totally secure. So today it's an actual secure web-based platform. It's still peer-to-peer, still looks and functions very much like Facebook, but all it is is Bush people hanging out together online, sharing their experience. Absolutely amazing. Um, so we've had about 700 people working together um, for about three years in that space. And um, we launched the Bush Tribe oh, a couple of weeks ago. That's so pretty new. So it's an August 2020 rollout. And wow. um, it's hilarious, Sammy. Like to do this <laughs> would typically take, a, you know, half a dozen staff and a couple of hundred thousand dollars of funding to get an app developed and 
it's serious stuff that we're doing now. It's bloody hard going. Um, but we don't have a couple of hundred thousand dollars in an app. We are doing what we can with what we have. Yeah. And it's a magnificent, it's a magnificent little platform. Um, our members are sponsoring it. So in other words, they just kick the tin, so to speak, for the charity. So it's a case of us helping ourselves. And I probably would explain that better by saying most of the services and support like this that you can access are government funded. Um, but we're not. So, yeah. and that's, that's complicated. That's really complicated because I've spent years looping looping in circles, um, seeking collaboration and support from the government. Um, but ironically, ironically, in the end, what's gotten us over the line is the fact that we've retained independence and a very real, very authentic voice. Um, so is that funny how things work out? Like I, I used to feel very heartbroken that they hadn't stepped up and supported us. Yeah. Whereas now I understand for the first time the reason sober in the country has grown so quickly is because I've been free to speak as a real person, um, you know, we haven't been muzzled and bound by governance and bureaucracy and you can say this and you can't say that. We've just been exactly who we are since day one. And that authenticity has what has been what's resonated so far and so wide. Um, and it was in the end, it was our superpower. So it's, it's funny how things like that work out, isn't it? Couldn't, um, couldn't agree more. Uh, yeah, yeah. And oh, I just by the way, and it's funny, I just got a I just got a nomination this week, um, just an email saying um that I've been nominated for Australian of the Year. Oh and, wow. congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, Sammy. And I was having a bit of a giggle thinking, Oh my god, the po- the politicians are gonna see my name pop up and go, Not her again <laughs> <laughs> Because I've I've been through the award cycle for many years. Actually, I've been rural woman of the year, regional woman of the year, finalist, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And anytime I go through that process, I keep saying, guys, that's so lovely. Thank you for the fancy certificate. But we need to see change. Yeah. We have to see change. Like, what is the point without it? I don't care about the damn certificate. I care about rural lives being saved. And at what point, at what point will our leaders step into the ring with me? And say, wow, you're fair income. You've been going at this for seven days a week for six years and you're impacting tens and thousands of lives. We might step in now and give you a hand. And as, look, to date that hasn't happened, but what has happened is philanthropic investors have stepped in and around us and given us some serious seed funding. Yeah. So it's really interesting. March 2020, we were sitting set to travel Australia and do educational talks and whatnot, and then the virus wiped us out. Um, as it did for everybody, of course. Yeah. And then out of nowhere came investors and they said, we've been watching you and we think this is incredibly important. How can we help you? And all of a sudden, you know, we're a really serious national voice um, with very serious national impact and actually a bit overwhelming because it's a huge responsibility. <clears throat> like it's, it's very serious what we're doing now. So, um, I, I truly think, Shannon, out of all the work you've been doing, I mean, it's such it's such great news to hear that you're finally mm. getting some uh, some runs on the board with regards to mm. people that are willing to support you financially um, to be able to to help you uh, share the word spread the word and and help this conversation actually take place around rural Australia I mean it's just such a great thing um, tell oh, us well, yeah. I know you're very modest um, but you're such oh. a, a beautiful person with no. such a great heart. Tell, but tell me, 
what's the future like where, where do you want to take it and what are you what outcome are you hoping for honestly sammy i i would just love to i would love to see uh, an australia in which the men and women who live out in droughts and fires and floods and whatnot are, are truly acknowledged and it's um it's like we're so busy looking at overlooked demographics in this nation that we forget the one demographic that's feeding everybody um and that disturbs me a lot so i'd like to see a future australia in which if someone like shanna Wan is out in the country contributing to the economy working hard loving it sick you know like we wouldn't live anywhere else that's the thing no one wants nobody wants handouts and bloody freebies we just my my dream there's two things i dream of the day where if someone like me is struggling and falling through the cracks and they stick their hand up and say, I need a hand, they can get it and it's affordable. That's the first thing I want to see. Yeah. So whether that's us developing an amazing app that is free to anyone who's rural, regional or remote and is a busy working Australian, it's like, hey, guys, thanks so much for getting up and showing up year in, year out in drought and rain and God knows what else. And, yes, we can help you back here. That would be nice. Um, the second thing and our charity pushes for this day and night, is we're trying to create a culture, and it's already happening, where it's okay to say no to a beer. Um, it's a bit like, you know, are you okay day? Yeah. You know, they don't sit there and say, we're the solution, we're the bomb, we can fix everyone. What they're saying is we need to make it okay to say, are you okay? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really beautiful, simple, inclusive message and chat, and that's the heart and soul of Sober in the Country. Is We've just got to make it okay when our mates say no to a drink, because... It's funny how often people, oh man, it triggers people sometimes when they see our page because they think we're prohibitionists. They think they're wowzers, and I'm like, have you not seen photos on the on the website of my husband having a beer? Yeah, <laughs> we don't give a stuff if you enjoy a beer. That's not our purpose. Yeah, our purpose is in making sure our friends who cannot or choose not to drink can do that without being harassed and given a hard time or ostracised within their own community. So. We're creating a massive cultural shift where if someone needs to come out of the closet as a non-drinker, <laughs> then we just bloody well say, no worries, I'll get you a soda water. And that is the end of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, it's good you made that yeah. distinction because, I mean, it's yeah. it's not that people can't still enjoy a beer or a couple here no. and there, right? So, I mean, you, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, but it's but at a point if they've had six and this or five and they're saying you know what I'm good now it's okay to say that that you're okay yeah. you don't want to have twelve yeah or alternatively you're saying that if you're driving to the races uh, and it's not about not being able to go to the races in the country or go to a rugby game mm. or go to a yeah a twenty first or whatever it is a wedding it's not the fact that 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 people other people shouldn't be drinking i mean that's not the, that's not the point the point is for them no. to be feeling like it's okay and the other people are supportive of their decision is that that that's what you're saying with the culture 100% Sammy. yeah it's it's about an inclusive culture because as it currently stands i mean it's 2020 it's yeah. insane in 2020 someone like um, a sober bloke would go into a country pub and with a mate and say i'll have a soda water and the other bloke is still more than likely to turn around and say, oh, what's wrong with you? You can't trust a bloke who says no to a beer. <laughs> and that's a mentality that is very much alive and well. Yeah. And what, what, what makes me have nightmares is I see some of the most extraordinary brave men, and I, I specifically refer to men here, because girls are good talkers. We communicate our fears and we support each other publicly. Blokes are a lot more complex in the country space. And so 
I'll give you an example that you will appreciate. Um, there's a beautiful man I know who's a friend of ours, a country rugby fella, just a beautiful man, super involved in his community, absolute champion, was battling terribly with alcoholism, sorted himself out. He's two years sober, has turned his life around. He's just an inspiration. To this day, he will have people jabbing him at the rugby and saying, when are you going to get get, get back on the piss, mate? When are you going to have another beer? When are you going to stop being such a saucy? Now, this is a bloke that they know nearly lost his entire family because of his drinking. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you'll see, I'll have a bit of a rant on our social media saying, guys, what are we doing? We've got to do better than that, yeah. much better than that. So it's really actually, um, it's about supporting our mates who cannot or who choose not to drink. And the other assumption is if you don't drink, you're an alcoholic. And that's such a sad thing because country blokes, as we're learning throughout huge extensive chats and you my friend are a perfect example of this you chose to you chose to back off because you just wanted to be a healthy guy who was present for your family you know that, um, that's how it lot- started it started with one month and then we went, went to three and yeah. then six and then a year um <laughs> but- remember how excited i was when i met you and i heard that i was like <laughs> whoa wait there wait right there i've got to write a blog about you uh, i mean I, I do i do and um mm. But you know what? I mean, I guess it's uh, the it's like a muscle. I find the more you work it, mm. the stronger it becomes. Yep. And the longer it went on, and, and I did it for health reasons to start with, and set yeah. a, a good mm. role model for my son, and that I had at the time. I, but the longer it goes on, it's almost like it's just I would never even contemplate it anymore. Uh, yep. But the but the people in my circle of friends know that, and yep. they, they don't. They don't ask me that. They just ask, you know, how are you enjoying it? Uh, obviously, it's going well. And so there's there are some conversations that I've found that have a result. Although, or the other thing I find, Shannon, is people want to talk to you about and convince you that they're actually not drinking a lot. So everyone, you, you, yeah. they, when, when they find out you're not drinking, whether they're at a party or a wedding, they're like, yeah, yeah you know, I, I only drink every now and again. And almost like they've got to prove yeah. to you. And it's like, oh, yeah. I, listen, I don't care if you, you know, you do, you do what yeah. you want to do. Um, yeah. This is a yeah. conscious choice I'm making, but uh, yeah. until you yeah. know, it's like it's like smelling a rose for the first time, and yeah. and yeah. and you know this. I mean, when you when you go down that path and you uh, choose to eradicate it or whatever you want to do in your life, it's completely mm. up. everyone's got their own choices, but it's it's just hard to communicate what it's like until you give it a go. And that's exactly it, and. Yeah, I will repeat this again and again and again on our social media. And sadly, you know, occasionally we'll get somebody who is plainly a very sick, struggling alcoholic and it's heartbreaking and they will lash out and get very venomous online and say things that are based in, um, you know, saying things like, go away with your stupid, you know, don't push this message and righty right. And they haven't actually even read our constitution or looked at our message, which is we don't care if you drink. We could care less. That's not about business. We're here for those who can't or don't or don't want to so that they can find a way forward. It, it's just amazing how instantly defensive and aggressive people get yeah. and very protective about the booze culture. Um, you know, it's, it's like threatening their, their way of life. People feel very, very, very threatened. And it wouldn't matter how many times you proceed your statements with, <laughs> hey, um, do, you, do you get that I'm the biggest alcoholic there ever was? There's no judgment here. It's never been about that. Yeah. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, our society is so engineered towards, you know, we literally, we measure a bloke in the country by how much he can drink. 
Yeah. It's it's kind of like our mark of a man. And and we're just um we're just trying so hard to just gently encourage people to think beyond that. Um if you drink, great. If you don't have a problem, great. If you do, <laughs> where do you go? Yeah. There's nowhere to go. You know, um you're ostracized geographically and now you're ostracized socially. So you take the example of my friend I was just mentioning before. Yeah. So this fella has literally been systematically cut off from all of his previous social groups because he chooses not to drink now. And a couple of his mates have been drunk enough to say, yeah, we don't like being around you anymore because yeah. you're sober. Now, if that's not a tragedy, I don't know what is. And if we can't learn as a society to just yeah. accept our mates because they're good mates, not because they can outdrink us every Friday night for 40 years, then we're pretty much in a bad spot, aren't we? It's not yeah. great. <laughs> That's such a pity. You know? I mean, because oh, it's heartbreaking. You know what? I mean, I personally yeah. love being able to being invited to places where you know they are having mm. a few drinks because it almost feels like they don't care, and and in most cases they don't care. Um, mm. Your mm. choice is your choice, and yep. we like you for Without who you choice. are, um, yes. and not for for what you are doing with us, and, and as far as the drinking mm. is concerned. And that's why I think. You know, I think it's it's such a great uh, it's such a great time when you can get invited to somewhere where they know you're not drinking, but they don't care. They're still happy to to have their beers and and do their thing. And that's it. All that feels that that's the inclusivity that I think you're talking about, right? Hundred Where it's okay. It's, yeah, and and you know, as you as you would know from your time in the country, we have got to have connection at the heart and soul of our our communities. Yes. Rugby, picnic races. Um, sports, whatever, like without that, we're doomed because we already spend extended periods of time alone. Isolation. So yeah. that social connection is critical, critical, critical stuff. And, and you know, what we're trying to do as a charity is to say, hey, if you have a rugby club that you're the president of, why don't you introduce some really, really awesome alcohol-free beverages that aren't dirty, cheap, nasty, sugary drinks? How's that for a rad idea? <laughs> um, like, because not all of us are pregnant or boring. Maybe we're just sober. <laughs> you know, so we're just trying to bring a modern um, conversation in. And we're saying, we don't care if you're serving beers, but what about an option for those who don't want sugar or water? Yeah. And there is an incredible, incredible range of alcohol-free drinks going global right now. So that's a little practical thing, you know, like yeah. just encouraging it to be not about the choice of drink in your hand, but your mateship. Yeah. Um, and it's such a simple, simple notion. And what we keep discovering is that the more we have this chat, the wider it travels, the more willing – people are far more ready and willing and prepared to get in the trenches and have this yarn than what we ever imagined. So it's just going to be a collective thing that will just take time. And I believe we've already begun we've – become, we've begun the process of making it totally okay to say, no, we've started the hard chat. Um, we've already made a massive dent in it, um, but what we're still lacking is the resources and tools for people who've gone to the end of the spectrum of the drinking who need more support, and that's the tricky bit, Sammy. Because as you might have read on our website, yes, we're just you know we're a charity making it okay to say no, but our primary purpose is. Did you see that Desmond Tutu quote on the website by any chance? Did you notice that one or? No, I'm, I'm looking for it now. Like, oh, actually, down the bottom, there comes a point where we need to stop pulling people out of the river and head upstream to find out why they, they keep falling in. Yeah. 
And that right there is what we want to do because Shanna won, <laughs> might have ended up a raging suicidal alcoholic, but I was a red flag drinker yeah. from the age of 18 at university, uh, in that bad year and then at university and, and whatnot. I was a red flag drinker. I was falling in long before I drowned. So kind of there's two purposes to our work. One is to catch those people before they fall in. And if we can do that through really amazing, authentic chats, and it's already happening. I'm getting messages from university students with overwhelming gratitude saying, Shan, I've been watching your stuff for a couple of years and because of it, I have finally for the first time felt like I can say no in a social situation. And I use you as an example if I get pushed back. And I just cry when I read that. I cry like a baby because that kid and that beautiful young person is going to go on to live a beautiful life that will not be plagued by alcoholism. It's just astonishing. So there's that. There's that preventative aspect. Yeah. But what we also want to do, there are people who have already fallen in who are where I was at and they are on the edge and we need. But the problem is because they look and walk and talk and sound like normal people with high-paying jobs or a fancy car or a farm, whatever people perceive as success, meanwhile they're probably in debt and they're hanging on the edge of everything. (laughs) But they're slipping through the cracks because they're not being picked up as a problem. So those are the people that we also need to be catching because they're still falling, but they've got a lot less give and a lot less scope to come back from. And 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 the bush tribe is probably the most. It's all you know. It's what we're doing. As I say, you know, we do what we can with what we have, and at least in that environment, let's say Joe Blow is at home, blackout drinking in year 10 of drought now he's got COVID and he can't cross the border to harvest his crops whatever or he's a you know business small town business agricultural supplier whatever and he's just on his last legs at least he can now come in and, and, and get onto a platform and talk with other people who get the enormity of that challenge so we can at least give peer support mm-hmm. and that's what we do in the tribe we're just yeah. a bunch of bushies who talk to each other. We just talk truth and we encourage each other. It's like a soft place to land so that they can be free to fall apart and say, I can't do this, I'm struggling, what do I do? And we can then say, well, what worked for me was this or here are some resources or here's an option. We've got you, mate. You've got a family behind you now. We'll do anything we can to help you through this. We don't make promises that we're the solution. We're just a bunch of people who understand it. And it's so funny, I feel like crying my eyes out because yeah. it's so sad what you um so funny it makes me emotional yeah. there are so many people in so much need who have never um previously felt that they had anywhere to go um yeah and they land in there and they're like i've never I, I didn't know i did not know and so that connection point is a, literally a lifeline for these extraordinary people who have been so lonely and so afraid and so so isolated and suddenly they have a virtual family to at least lean on and break down um, some of those stigmas with. And it's, um, it's very beautiful, Sammy. It's a very powerful, beautiful group. Yeah. Well, uh, said perfectly from a beautiful person doing an absolutely <laughs> incredible thing. Uh, how can people get in touch with you, Shan? Um, so basically what, what we have is, um, various, we're all over social media. Yep. But the quickest thing people could do is just go to the website, which is soberinthecountry.org, uh-huh. and everything is linked there. All of our social media is linked, the Bush Tribe is linked, it's all linked. So 
it's a very comprehensive website. So that's the easiest way. Um, and it's probably important, Sammy, that we qualify here that, you know, we're not a one-on-one addictions counselling service support. Mm-hmm. It's peer support only. And it's, um, you know, we're, we're just at the beginning of this. So we're, you know, it's, it's really important people understand what we are equipped to do and what we aren't. And it's certainly not a service point, but it is a, it is a peer rural environment and, and broad scale advocacy. So, you know, I'd just like to clarify that because gets a bit heartbreaking we get a lot of people saying i need you to help me and i say i i'm not i'm not actually a counselor i'm not an aod worker i just started this charity but i can you know get you into the tribe and come here because there's a hundred more of us that get it you know anyway it's just an important clarification no that's that's Mm. that's great thanks for clarifying but i mean uh, thanks for t- thanks for sharing the, the conversation, uh, sh- sharing your story, and being able to have the conversation with me today. It's you, you know uh, I'm a big believer in what you're doing. I, I love the movement. Um, I love your energy and your drive, uh, and it's great to be able to share your story um, to our broader audience. And thanks very much for spending the time with me today. Is there anything you want to say in closing? Oh, well, you know what? I reckon, Sammy, a thank you to you because how nice is the synchronicity that um, back in whenever the heck it was that I flew down to Tasmania, you guys accepted my um, application to present at one of your rural mental health conferences. So I believe the ANZMHA was actually my first major speaking thing. Um, So I just reckon it's very cool. There's a lot of synchronicity and connections that go back to you guys. So... I just want to say thank you to you because um, the, the collaborative aspect of what we're doing is everything to us. And, um, yeah, it's just really nice to have the support of bigger organisations who get it. And um, we love you right back is what I'm saying. So thanks, Sammy. Thank you, Shan. And, uh, and thanks very much for, you know, for leading uh, because that's indeed what you're doing. Leaders, leaders go first and you are, in fact, um, doing something that's truly inspirational and such a great thing. So good luck with it and we look forward to getting some updates as you progress throughout this journey because I know that you've uh, still got a long way to go in order to achieve what you want to achieve. But um, thanks very much for taking the time to talk uh, with me today. Thank you so much, Sammy. Really appreciate it. We'll be, we'll be talking online, no doubt. <laughs> Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.